Yesterday was the 30th anniversary of the reunification of what was East and West Germany back into Germany again. And if you would meet somebody who lived there, not just in the past 30 years, but in the past 60 or 90 years, what would they say? What if they were a believer, precious few, especially in the eastern part, and had lived through not just the last 30 years of a democratic republic, but 40 plus years before that, in a totalitarian, communist, atheist setting, and another dozen or more years before that, under Hitler's Nazi regime. How are they supposed to make sense of that? How are they supposed to view the government over them? How are they supposed to respond to that government? Not just as human beings, but perchance if they're followers of Jesus Christ. How do we respond to the government that God has placed over us? How do believers around the world view those who are over them and to whom they have, the Bible says, some kind of responsibility. Back in 2007, we embarked on an in-depth exploration of Paul's letter to the Romans. The book divides nicely into four sections, and we decided that we would do a series each year, ending with Romans 12 to 16 in the year 2020. Back in the spring of this year, I contemplated whether to do this series in the summer or in the fall. The fall seemed better for several reasons. Little did I know what the summer and the fall would bring. I never could have predicted even the last three weeks, but God knew. And I believe it is no accident at all that we are in Romans 13 this Sunday, the first Sunday in October, with all that's going on in our society, our culture, our government, our courts, our elections. Timely and relevant is an understatement for this passage today. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 13. This is the fourth passage in our series, Living Out the Gospel, from Romans 12 to 16. Romans 12, 1 and 2 are kind of the overriding thesis, the, the theme verses of all of these chapters, describing what our lives look like as living sacrifices in worship to God, in being transformed by the renewing of our minds, not conformed to the pattern of this world, of this age. Several weeks ago, we looked at verses 3 to 8, mutual service and humility within the body of Christ. Last week, we looked at verses 9 to 21 of chapter 12 that highlight what the character of Jesus looks like in countercultural ways in our setting. And now we switch from relationships within the body of Christ, relationships in society, to life under government. And Paul highlights how followers of Jesus, who are new creatures in Jesus Christ, live in an old regime, in a world that has fallen and will be passing away. Paul shows that our interaction with government, get this, is a key part of our worship of God. Let me say that again. Paul shows how our interaction with government is a key part of our worship of God. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. As we often do, I'm going to invite you to stand if you can, and I'll read that for us. Romans 13, verses 1 to 7, the Word of God says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. 
Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Thank you. You may have a seat. Thanks for honoring God's word in that way. I hope you picked up a copy of the worship program on your way in. We also send this to you digitally as well. You can follow along in our outline. We're going to look at this passage for the bulk of our time together and then explore a second topic, and that is its application in challenging ways in our time and in all time. First main point, submission to governing authorities reflects a divinely inspired trust, a trust that God gives to those who follow Jesus Christ. And we can divide this passage up into three different sections. The first two verses, we submit to earthly governments because they are divinely authorized. Paul repeats in this passage his main point multiple times, in fact, three times in these first two verses because he doesn't want us to miss it. Governing authorities are put in place by God. There's no such thing as an earthly authority, not just in our country, but around the world, that is beyond God's sovereign will and beyond God's purpose. God has established them for a season in that position. They are divinely authorized. Let me ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe that is true, whatever the outcome of November 3rd is? Is the current president, in your mind, a divine mistake? Was the last president a divine mistake? Will the one after this year be a divine mistake? Paul is abundantly clear that the answer to all those questions is a resounding no. The first line here in verse 1 reads literally, Let every soul to the authorities that govern be subject. The way it works in the original language, you can front load your main point into the first words. We can sometimes do this in English. It's very clear in the original Greek. Let every soul. Why did Paul emphasize that? Well, because Paul knows our human inclinations to want to get out of obligations that we don't want. We are experts as people at finding principles or responsibilities that apply to everyone else except for us. John Stott says, by nature as humans and by culture as Americans, we resist the responsibility to submit. But Paul won't allow that here. Every one of us is in view. We're to submit to the authority over us. They've been put there by God. Now, remember back in Paul's day, the authorities... There was the Roman Empire, and there were no Christian authorities. There was no large Christian influence in the top levels of government. Most Romans or even Jews were unfriendly or hostile to the church. Nero, remember, was the emperor. 
He was headquartered in the very city to whom Paul wrote, those readers in Rome. This was like living in Washington, D.C. during the reign of the worst leader who ever lived, far worse than anyone who could be there today or anyone who has been there in our lifetime. Paul writes this in the time of Nero. In due time, a few years after they received this letter, Nero would become a master at oppressing the people and perpetuating injustice on a massive scale. And and eventually, Christians would bear the brunt of Nero's rage. And yet, he's one of the authorities that God has established. It doesn't mean that, that God's responsible for Nero's sin, his wickedness, or that everything that wicked authorities require have to be done, has to be done. We'll get to that in a moment. Here's what it does mean. All human authority is derived from God's authority. So resistance to those authorities is actually resistance to God. Good authorities, bad authorities, awful authorities, God has established them. And to resist them is to resist him. God, through Paul, tells believers in Rome to submit or be subject to those authorities. I don't have to tell you that submission is a rather unappealing word to most people, especially freedom-loving, self-actualized, independent, 21st century Americans like you and me. Who in their right mind, after all, wants to become a doormat to anyone, especially government, let them walk all over them. That's foolishness, isn't it? But in in order to understand what Paul is saying here, we need to understand at least two things. First of all, life is full of authorities. Even in our culture, there are many situations, many relationships where there's hierarchy. Someone is over someone else. Someone's boss. Secondly, submission doesn't mean blind obedience or self-destruction. Submission doesn't mean blind obedience or self-destruction. Rather, submission is a willful act of ordering oneself under someone else because of the role that God has given to them. Submission for the believer is always about recognizing God's plan, God's pattern, God's presence. We ultimately submit to God. But the question arises, should we submit to authorities that are evil, that are ignorant, that are malicious, that are hypocritical, incompetent? Could God want us to do that? Actually, yes. I look in this vein, you're welcome to do so as well, to find the the escape clause, to find the loophole that liberates me from this command. Do you see one in there? Paul's not asking us to approve of our governing authorities. We, We don't submit to our governing authorities because of some kind of contract or consent we give. We might hear that in America. That's not what the Bible is saying. We do so out of obedience to God. Think beyond our American setting here. Christians have lived throughout the centuries all over the world. And all over the world, for many centuries, there have been some very imperfect, very incompetent, sometimes very evil rulers. Think of the believers in China today. Think of believers in Pakistan in recent decades. Think of believers in the old Soviet Union. Think of the... Roman believers under Nero. And yet Paul's instruction to them and to them and to them is all the same. 
From a human perspective, Doug Moo writes, rulers come to power through force or heredity or popular choice. In our country, the latter. We, we have an opportunity to have a say in that. But that's unusual. In most places, most people don't. And that's not our right, according to the Bible. God is in control, the Bible teaches, even when we don't have a voice or a vote. Now, it's true that our fellow Americans might protest this, but the transformed mind, remember Romans 12, 2, recognizes behind every such process, force, heredity, or popular choice, the hand of God. We believe in the supernatural hand of history. This past week, I was reading uh, a bit about our early American founding, and one of our founders, Ben Franklin of all people, said the following at America's Continental Congress. Quote, the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this being true, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probably that as an empire can rise without his aid? No. God's people have always believed that God is in control. Go back hundreds of years before Jesus Christ, in the time of Daniel, 600 B.C., the people believed that God's hand was guiding history. Sometimes even the pagan rulers came to find that out in some strange ways. I love the passage in Daniel chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar, where he has his aha moment. And he recounts what he learns in a vision from God. Quote, the decision is announced by messengers, verse 17 of Daniel 4. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. God's hand is guiding history. Even in Jesus' life, people had opportunity to see that. Remember the exchange between Jesus and Pilate? Pilate thought he had the upper hand, that Jesus had no power. So he said at one point in his conversation with Jesus, Do you refuse to speak to me? John 19, 10 and 11. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you, Pilate said. Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. God controls history and leaders. They're established by God. Second point, we submit to earthly governments because they exist for our well-being. We see that in verses 3 and 4 and 5. All of us, if we're honest, have longed for a time in which we could be in control of everything. There wouldn't be any authorities in our lives. Imagine that. Complete freedom to do what we want, with whom we want, when and where we want, why we want. To be controlled by none, to be the, the master of our fate, the captain of our soul. It starts in preschool. When the teacher takes away the toy that you want and gives it to someone else. How can she do that? Happens in our teenage years when our parents won't let us decide every facet of our lives. Not that that's current at all for us. Happens in the workplace, in our careers, when the boss won't let us reorganize the flow chart and redo the org chart. We have authorities in life and we object to that. Can you relate? You see, God knew in a fallen world that he would need to institute authorities, government in this case, in order to bring order and justice in a sinful world. Otherwise, evil would, would be unrestrained. 
We see uh, an early description of government way back in Genesis chapter 9 after the flood. But we especially see that in this letter. And we read that they are God's servants for our good. Think about that for a moment. Government is not the great evil to be despised. Those who serve God by overseeing us, they're placed there for our good. Whatever their background, even whatever their beliefs. Of course, that's easier to accept when there are people in high places who share our values, who share our worldview. And I'm thankful for some people who are believers in our local and state and national government, including several from our church. What kind of government does God prescribe for a fallen world? Romans doesn't answer that question. Perhaps the Bible doesn't teach an abstract ideal government. All of them are imperfect, and the only one I really know and my preference is democracy. Winston Churchill once said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the other forms that have been tried. Probably right. The best government, when we look at the scriptures, is one that acts wisely and seeks justice for people. So so the gospel is equally hostile to tyranny as it is to anarchy. Neither one of them bring a pervasive sense of justice in society. A lot of people have thought long and hard about this passage, not just in our day, though that's true, but also throughout history. One of the notable theologians of our day is Wayne Grudem. He writes this, listen closely. Government is a gift from God for mankind generally. It is one of the primary means God uses to restrain evil. And that's true. We should be thankful for government. And we should even participate where we can. Grudem goes on to write, It is right for Christians to attempt to persuade government to make laws that protect families and private property and the lives of human beings. And in America, we know we have that possibility. Many of us vote. Many of us advocate for certain things. Paul Paul is describing here the the divine ideal, not the human reality sometimes of government. No government is completely just, and many nowhere close. The the government back in Paul's day, in Jesus' day, was, was widely despised, especially by those of Jewish background. And for believers, the government could all often be quite oppressive. But the government, nonetheless, was still fulfilling its role to provide order, to keep peace, and to ensure some measure of justice. So what's government supposed to do? Well, books have been written on that. Jonathan Lehman summarizes, I think, in good fashion, three things. Number one, to render judgment for the sake of justice. Government defends its citizens from foreign invaders and punishes people when they harm or kill others in society. Government's there for justice. Second, to build platforms of peace, order, and flourishing. To provide some setting where people can can follow the cultural commission, Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And the great commission, we'll see in a moment, for Jesus Christ. Purpose three, to set the stage for redemption. 
whether government realizes it or not, one of its purposes in God's plan is to allow his people to pursue and spread the gospel, to call all nations to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That's much of why we pray for government leaders. That's much of why we submit to government authorities, why we obey laws and promote order, why we show civility in our world. It's bigger than just you have to. It's our duty. No, it enhances the gospel. It opens the door for witness. Listen along or turn there if you want. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 6, a key passage for us, especially in these times of overheated tensions in our country and even elections coming. Here's what it says, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 and following. I urge then, Paul writes, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good. And pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. See why we pray? We pray not just for their well-being and their wisdom and their insight as leaders, but we pray for them so that we would live right. Paul writes here that governing authorities commend the good and punish the bad. We all know ways in which the government punishes the wrongdoer. Some of us know that personally. It can be as mild as a parking violation or speeding ticket. It can be tax or financial wrongdoing. It can certainly go to the point of those who endanger life or commit violent crime. The sword, a word there, is used as a symbol of the power of the state. Some Bible scholars believe that this was specifically put there to affirm capital punishment, that the state had authority over the lives of those who take others' lives. In any case, that power should give us a healthy sense of fear about breaking the law, and for most of us it does. Romans 12, if you remember last week, talks about vengeance belonging to the Lord, not to us. We don't just get even with anyone who wrongs us. And we often think that the Lord's vengeance only comes at the end of time. But is it possible that at one level, God uses the state in our time to bring about vengeance and justice? I believe the answer is yes. So why do we submit to governing authorities? We do so because we fear punishment. We also do so because it's right. Because we don't want to violate our conscience, our our recognition of what's right and wrong here. We submit to the laws when no one else is looking and when no one else sees, Paul says. We will obey the state even when there are no civil consequences because our motivation is obedience to God who established governing authorities. And God always sees. Now, if we're honest, the state governing authorities tend to be better at punishing the bad rather than rewarding the good. We don't often think of the government as a rewarder of good behavior. Maybe in your life, but I can't think of that many times. But in many ways, the government can be a help. We've experienced that in our day. When the pandemic broke out six, seven months ago, our 
government undertook in rather short order, it was shocking, uh, significant steps to help those affected. And that included, among other things, help for small businesses under the payroll protection plan. Remember that? And thanks especially to certain senators, that included nonprofits and even churches. And we're a beneficiary. There are a host of ways in which nonprofits in this country, in this time, receive beneficial treatment from government. As individuals, many of us, because of our life status or situation or offspring, receive certain benefits from government. And yet, we should always be leery, careful about too much coordination between church and state. Total separation brings about a hostility. Too much entanglement is a problem that limits freedom. Alva J. McLean, first president of Grace Theological Seminary, uh, wrote this in his commentary on Romans. Paul carefully avoids two errors concerning the realm of church and state. The first error is the view that we would confuse the church and state, uniting them. Think of the Roman Catholic Church or even the Church of England. On the other hand, Paul avoids the other extreme of setting them in opposition to one another. They're not the same, but they're not necessarily hostile to each other in this era. Third, we submit to earthly governments because we have obligations to them. Verses 6 and 7. The idea that we have obligations to others is assumed in most cultures, but somewhat foreign to us. We're independent people. We, we prize our freedoms as Americans. We're libertarian in much of our thinking. We tend to assume that, that others owe us little and we owe them nothing. Life's what you make it. Not, not just relationally, but also in terms of authorities. We often think of obligations as something that we owe to someone else because they deserve it. And you might sit here this morning and say, what does government deserve from me? Well, Paul teaches that we have obligations to government. Look at verse 7. Respect is owed. All of us are to respect others made in God's image, regardless of their behavior or their status. Honor is owed. Look there. The Bible, for instance, teaches that children are to honor their parents, regardless of how skilled they may be. We tell our children this all the time, by the way. Christians owe authorities honor. Honor because God has put them there, not solely because of their competence. Paul didn't want the Roman believers to undermine witness to the gospel because of the unrest that they created. The passage speaks here of revenue, which is hard to discern what it means. Some kind of other monetary uh, payment distinct from normal taxes, and of course, Paul mentions here taxes, verse 6. Why? Because the government needs funded. I've yet to meet someone who loves to pay taxes, but Paul says that it's part of what it means to be a citizen in a society. Verse 6 teaches that. Those people deserve to be compensated. In one of our study Bibles, the ESV study Bible, it says this, Christians must not refuse to pay taxes simply because they think some of the money is used unjustly. And undoubtedly, we do think that at times. For the Roman Empire surely did not use all of its money for godly purposes. And that doesn't sit well with us. But remember the story with Jesus. 
You don't have to turn there. We find it in several of the Gospels. Mark chapter 12, for instance, verse 13. Here's how the interchange went with Jesus. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Whether they meant that or not is disputed. They were right in what they said. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought him the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him probably disappointed too because he escaped their trap. Mark Dever, a pastor in Washington, D.C., in our day, describes what is happening in that passage. Here, Here Jesus is telling them, pay for it. Pay that tax that's going to pay the salary of the very men who are about to drive the nails into my hands. Not because... What they are doing is right, but because government reflects the character of God and God will deal with them. Did you see what he's saying? Pay a tax that if you follow where it goes, will end up with nails in my hands and my life on a cross. Go ahead and pay that tax. Wow. See, this is why followers of Jesus are willing to do what's right, including to submit to imperfect, sometimes even unjust, authorities and bear the consequences. That's why Jesus could entrust himself to God who will bring about justice in his time. Peter, a contemporary of Paul, wrote something very similar to what Paul writes here in Romans chapter 12. Paul didn't just make this up. Peter says something similar in chapter 2 of his first letter, verse 13. Listen along. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Those are astounding words in the midst of a wicked culture and an evil leader. Together with Romans chapter 13, we see that Christian citizens, including many of us in this room, will choose to submit to the authorities God's placed there, to honor his representatives, to pay our taxes, and to pray for our welfare. These are wide-ranging principles with lots of application. We ought to take them seriously. And yet, and yet, a whole host of questions arises in our minds. Romans 13, 1 to 7, completely true, but it's not the whole picture. It's clear here, but our hearts and our minds respond with all kinds of reservations. But what about, and we fill in the blank, 
And many of those questions are legitimate. Many that you have are legitimate. Because when we, when we look at the broader teaching of Scripture, when we look at the experiences of history, we see that submission to governing authorities, point two, comes with some caveats, some qualifications. Doug Moo referred to earlier said, it's only a slight exaggeration to say that the history of interpretation of Romans 13, 1 to 7, is the history of attempts to avoid what seems to be its plain meaning. We read that and we say, I get it, but what about? Did you feel yourself thinking that this morning? We don't like what we read. But let's look at several whatabouts. What if a government does a poor job at rewarding what is good and punishing what is evil? Well, that's true in almost every society. Every government is quite flawed, some just more than others. You can certainly look at the American founding documents and find them deeply inspiring. But even our history at justice is uneven at best. For some groups, it's been appalling. Yet Paul calls the Romans and us and believers around the world to submit. Why? Well, because God placed them there. In other words, you and I should be careful not to justify our response based upon an imperfect government. Another what about? What if the leaders of government are individuals of poor character and little human decency? In many societies, and you've noticed this perhaps if you've traveled or studied much, uh, the character of leaders is almost irrelevant to the populace. Power is what speaks. As a result, there are lots of leaders in history and around our world today who have little decency and questionable character. Our country has been somewhat exceptional in that regard. Beginning with George Washington 200 and some odd years ago, we have had this expectation, this hope that our leaders were not only wise leaders, but, but men, and they've been men as present thus far, of character. For instance, you may not know this, but in the history of our country, up until the present era, we've had one president who's ever been divorced. Now, that doesn't mean that all of our presidents have been angels. There are all kinds of ways in which people can have flawed lives or relationships or even character. But we've aspired to leaders of character. And yet, for Christians who respond to government authorities, Paul doesn't make that a condition. We're called to submit to whom God has chosen as leader or leaders over us. McLean again says, no matter what the character of a man may be, we are to respect his office because he holds that office by divine commission, and we are to uphold the regular, divinely constituted authorities and not help the world in its chaos of lawlessness. That should affect how we view any and every leader that God puts over us. What about? What about if the government uses our tax dollars for things that we not only disapprove of, but we think are immoral. In some ways, we've already touched on this question. Paul told the believers in Rome to submit to the governing authorities and to pay taxes, to honor the emperor, Peter says, and yet we know that those authorities were using some of those tax dollars for things that were, were profoundly immoral. So it's a 
it's a difficult argument to say that the poor use of our tax dollars is somehow justifying our rebellion against the government. That may be a very American argument, but it's hard to square that with Scripture. Again, Dever, pastor in D.C., who hears this all the time from congregants in his church, says even when governments support immorality and sin, as every government since the fall has done in one way or another, we are at least normally to continue to support it. As we correct and improve it, we should be very slow to conclude that even when a particular sin is propagated, that this removes the rightful authority of the government. Yeah, but what about? What about when government requires me to sin by transgressing God's commands? This is where the real tension arises, at least as we look at Romans 13 and other parts of Scripture and history. What do we do? Well, before we answer that, we need to clarify the nature of the question. This isn't about the government doing something that I or that we disapprove of or find immoral or unjust. This is specifically when we're required by the government to do something that is sin. Or we're forbidden to do something that God commands us to do. Fortunately, in our background, we, that's been rather infrequent in our society, at least compared to elsewhere, but those days may come, and we shouldn't be surprised or unprepared when they do. Remember what Jesus told his first followers? John 15, 19, you don't belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. And then Jesus said, but with the exception of America, you're exempt from this. No, it applies to us too, and we may experience that. What about these situations? Forced abortions. Witness forbidden. Required euthanasia. Worship banned. Approval of sexual sin. The examples are many more, and these aren't hypothetical. They exist or have existed among Christians elsewhere. In such cases, we are called to what's called civil disobedience because what's required contradicts God's command. Tim Keller in our day, New York City, says this. Yeah, I think this succinctly captures it. The Bible gives a very clear basis for civil disobedience. Namely, if the state commands what God forbids, or if the state forbids what God commands, then civil disobedience is a Christian duty. Now, we need to be certain that this is the case. We're very wise to get the counsel of others, to act collectively when we can, but we must not disobey God. In fact, we find that in the Bible. Exodus chapter 1. Hebrew midwives are told to, to kill the young boys. They disobey. They don't. Daniel chapter 3. Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are told to bow down in worship of the golden image or face the fiery furnace. They would not. Acts chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, Peter and the apostles are commanded to go silent on Jesus, and they would not. We must obey God rather than men, they said. And in these cases and others, it was required, this response. Their motivation, though, wasn't just to push back at government. It was to say, 
God as our ultimate authority. It wasn't an ego trip. It was a settled determination to obey, obey God. And they were willing to face the consequences. There are all kinds of difficult situations as we look at history. Hiding Jews from extermination camps in Nazi Europe. Distributing Bibles in communist countries. Undergoing baptism in certain Islamic countries. Closer to home. Requiring to put together flowers or bake cakes for so-called gay marriages. Worship gatherings in the face of prohibitions. Employment requirements, hiring expectations, even school assignments that mandate your involvement in something that is anti-biblical. These are challenging questions. Some of you know them personally. Here's what we conclude. Remember to be certain of the requirement to sin. Does this require you to sin? Don't confuse personal convictions with biblical commands. They're not always the same. Pray and seek counsel. Assert your rights winsomely. And remember that there are believers around the world who have faced far, far more than we have and done it well. God will see you through. The teaching of Paul in Romans 13 still stands today. Being subject to authorities, the church subverts worldly powers. It's not about your rights or my freedoms. It's about our witness and our Lord. And even a well-lived life, and that's the will of God for us, when we confess Jesus, we are with that very statement relativizing the claims of certain authorities and traditions and leaders. The fact is that you and I aren't revolutionaries against the authorities that God has established. We're revolutionaries in our ultimate allegiance to Jesus Christ. Pastor Zach said this week, Christians are the ones who best submit to authority because we recognize the highest authority. We're the exemplary ones. I hope that's true. That we're looking for ways to be the best citizens for the sake of God's name, for the cause of the gospel. And because of our commitment to Christ, we can resist social pressures to force us to do things that go against what God commands. But we're willing to submit. We choose to in every way we can so as to give opportunity for the gospel. Believers submit themselves to temporary earthly authorities because the ultimate authority and the sovereign one over history is God. Let's pray. God, these are challenging, challenging teachings. But our lives are not our own. They belong to you. And God, for those of us who know Jesus Christ, we do not want to damage the testimony or witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to be people who point to you. In this day, in these weeks, in this year and beyond, would you give us the strength and the discernment the grace and the determination to live with you as our ultimate authority and as best we can to be good citizens 
under these as well. We need your help, and we're grateful for it. In your name we pray. Amen.